he scared off Stokes, breathed Ada. No one scared Stokes. It was Stokes' job to do the scaring. But the flying man was unconcerned about what he'd done. Instead, he came down from that tree, tied his long locked hair in a knot, pulled a small ax from his pouch, and started cutting a path through the plants, heading deeper into the tangled thicket. He turned back, seeing that we weren't following him. How'd you learn to do that? Ada called after him. Who are you? I asked. What are you doing in this here swamp? He shook his head and kept hacking away. Then he stopped and for the first time, he stared right at me. A chill ran down my spine. He saw me. None of those questions are good ones, he said. Here are some questions. Can you spot beer tracks in mud? Do you know how to keep snakes off you at night? Do you know how to hunt? He doesn't know any of those things, chimed in Ada. Catch up, I said, knowing she was right. Well, you don't, insisted Ada. Then you best follow me, said the man, and he went right back to his hacking. Follow you where? Who knew where this man would take us? If Stokes had found us, as soon as Mama got away, she could too. Staying meant we'd be here where Mama could find us. This was all too much to explain to this snake-shooting, fire-starting man, and even harder to explain to Ada. We might as well go on, said Ada, and off she went, running behind him. Ada, I called. I saw the man's head bobbing up and down in the bush. And right before he went out of sight, he said, Suleiman, my name is Suleiman. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and what you just listened to was an excerpt from Amina Lukman Dawson's debut novel, Free Water. I'm super excited about today's episode, and I'll have more to say in a minute about our guest. I'm joined for this conversation by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? We've missed you. And you're ready to get into this conversation. Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. I've missed you all, too. And I've missed being here, uh, though I've been just really enjoying hearing the episodes with you and Fola. But yeah, it feels great to be back. And so I know that you have a particular personal connection with today's guest. So I thought usually I introduce the guest and give listeners some background about them. But today I'm going to let you do that because you have this special relationship. So take it away. Yeah, no, so I'm really feeling powerful emotional combination of pride, nostalgia, sadness, and affirmation as we have this conversation. Pride, because I've known uh, today's guest, Amina Lukman Dawson, for nearly 25 years. And I'm just absolutely delighted to see what she's accomplished artistically and professionally in her life and in this world. And I'm feeling nostalgic because Amina came to work with me and Susan and the team at Justice Matters back in 2000. And that's how we got to know each other. I remember when she started dating this very tall black dude named Robert Dawson. Susan and I went to dinner with her and Robert. Now they have this 14-year-old son. And I'm sad because Susan's not here to share in this success, but she read the manuscript for Free Water five years ago. And she really wow. uh, liked it when it when when Amina sent it to us. It was Susan, you know, traditionally being ahead of her time in that regard. And I'm feeling affirmed because Amina is another example of the lessons that Susan and I honed in on after she was diagnosed with cancer. And we took the time to review really our lives, what we had done that had the greatest impact in the world. 
And that process led us to draft a document that I've recently returned to. In a lot of ways, it's almost kind of been like Susan speaking to me. And what we wrote in this document, we said that individuals are more important than strategies or a particular set of tasks. Without the right talent, the best strategies will fail. We need to spend more time around talented people and learning about the work they are moving forward. Our role is enabling talented people. And so when I look back, obviously, in the people like Stacey Abrams, Michael Tubbs, and Andrea Guerrero, they manifest that in the political space. And Mina absolutely represents this reality in the realm of art and culture. It was a journey to get to this level of success. It was a great honor for me and Susan to be on this journey with her. And I'm just delighted to have her on the podcast and for all of our listeners to get to know this person who's been so important to us. So, Mina, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate that. And I so feel the same way. I feel both this extraordinary humility and a wonderful sense of connection with you and a sense of just, it's bittersweet that Susan has been on this journey for so long. And I would so love for her to hear these words as well. I'm incredibly moved just hearing your words, Steve, and also Mina, you know, so touched knowing about your long relationship with Steve and Susan and how all of you have touched each other's lives. With that, I wanted to give the listeners some background about you, Mina. Our guest today is Amina Lookman Dawson. Amina is the author of the award-winning New York Times bestseller, Free Water. Free Water, which is Amina's debut novel, was the 2023 recipient of the John Newberry Medal, which is the highest honor for children's literature. The book also won the Coretta Scott King Award in 2023, which is also an extremely high honor. Amina has written op-eds and book reviews, and in 2009, she authored a pictorial history book titled Images of America, African Americans of Petersburg. Amina holds a bachelor's in political science from Vassar College and a master's in public policy from UC Berkeley. Welcome, Amina. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. So as we get into it, Amina, can you just describe for the listeners a brief description in your own words of what the book Free Water is? Free Water is a middle grade historical fiction book. Uh, It's about two children who were enslaved but escape and find themselves deep in a swamp where they discover a maroon community, the maroon community called Free Water. And it's there that they learn what it means to be free. It's there that they learn that they have power um, and they meet all sorts of other children who it both inspire them and teach them about what it means to live free. And of course, when you know that, you start to think about what your power is and what you want to do with it. And so Homer, my protagonist, hatches a plan to return to the plantation where he's left his mother and to go and rescue her from enslavement and let the adventure really get rolling there. It's quite an adventure tale. Oh, and I want to just throw in, in terms of the this journey that, you know, I and Susan, I have been on in terms of the intersections of social change and art and African-Americans and whatnot. So I had the chance to, as I mentioned, we were, we talk often about Stacey Abrams in terms of how we were, um, you know, early on the journey politically with her. But we had the chance to go see her speak at City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco as an author. So she's actually written you know, two fiction books. Just fascinating to hear her talk about writing science fiction and, and then narrative mm-hmm. fiction and whatnot. And so these tools, I think, being relevant in terms of 
the journey and the struggle around justice and equality in this country, which I think we're gonna we're gonna get into. I totally am in awe of Stacey Abrams being one that she has this wonderful political place in the world. And then also that she has this artistic sort of extraordinary path. I I just find her fantastic. And I I really, I think I, I admire that in a way because it, it's something that I wish that I could, I could do. I don't know that I have, if I have the ability to both be artistically relevant and good and also be politically like engaged. And so I, that is, she is, I should say my inspiration. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but (laughs) one of the things that did get you into the national stage was you wrote about Obama back in, uh, in 2007. (laughs) Right. So, but we'll, we'll we'll hold that. And so Shannon, why don't you go ahead? (laughs) Yeah. So, Amina, um, first of all, uh, I'm also a writer. I also do literary writing in my, you know, quote unquote free time. I'm also a mom. And so I feel like I could talk to you for days. And I'm just a huge fan of your book. I've started reading it. I can't put it down. It's beautiful. I've started reading it with my uh, my daughter is also reading it. And I'm listening to the audio version. So I encourage everyone. It's a fantastic book to uh, get the actual book and also listen to the audiobook because the audiobook you have some fant- very talented actors doing the the narration i feel like you're living in our home with us because my you know as my daughter and i are both reading it i'll say oh did you get to this part this part we you know <laughs> and we're just enjoying it so much i do have a funny story in that steve is the first one who told me about the book he said i have a friend she wrote this book you and your daughter might be interested and so i immediately bought her a copy and it was, you know, at the point she has had a lot of books. She was already queued up and she said, oh, I'm going to get to it. And then I said, you know, that book won the Newbery. And she just lit up because it's like when an adult says to another adult, that book won the Pulitzer. Because then she really, you know, you like, oh, 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 OK. I'm definitely going to read it. <laughs> Not just one of Steve's and, random friends. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's just I mean, it kind of reminded me the same thing with adults. It's like, there's so many books out there. Mm-hmm. But when you do say to a friend like, oh, you know, it won the Pulitzer. It definitely they kind of got, they move, move it to the front of the queue. I love that. <laughs> but they definitely, you know, kids who are big readers, like my daughter, they know Newberry. It's, it's, it is that gold standard. And I mean, I do too. And so I'm, first of all, huge congratulations on all the success for your book and just how beautifully written it is and such an important topic. So on that note, I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to write this particular book, this topic, and why now? And also just earlier, you mentioned the word maroon, and I was wanting to ask you to quickly define for our audience what that word means. Absolutely. So maroons are Africans who escaped enslavement and found a way to live in the wilderness free yet clandestine lives. It is a term that is more widely known internationally in other parts of the West where there were, where enslavement was prominent just as it was here. Um, and so you can find it in Jamaica where maroon communities were so strong that they fought for their freedom and managed to find ways to gain their sovereignty. And so you can find descendants of maroons still there on that land, which I find fascinating. You can find it in Suriname, you find it in Brazil, basically any place that there was where enslavement took place, as you might imagine, logically, Africans who live near some bit of wilderness would find ways to go there and live free. 
And so why this book? It's an interesting thing because it's unlikely that I would have been the person to have written a book that dealt with enslavement. And so the book came to me because I wanted something for my son. The idea came to me well before he was born, but I kind of talked myself out of it because I thought, well, who am I? Who am I really to to make a commentary, to, to say, have commentary on this very, I think, hard and important topic? So I shied away from it. But what I wanted to do for him was something that I didn't feel like I'd had. In, in my childhood, I felt as though my introduction to this topic of, about slavery really came filled with fear and some pain. And it is both a painful and scary topic. That's not, it's not like that was illegitimate, but I felt like I wanted him to be able to engage, particularly engage the people who were part of this horrific system, the enslaved people who were there in a different way. And so I was always thinking, how can I both pull my my son and other kids like him into this topic and yet also share a bit of what it was in a way that they can that can be accessible. Uh, and so that he was my inspiration. I really appreciated having a book that I could read and my daughter could read where the slaves who in this case are children, there's such a sense of also wonder and mm-hmm. innocence and even humor in the set, in the way that some of the other books that she's already read and that I've read on this topic that are even for young people they don't come from that place. The characters are, you know, there's just, there's the suffering, there's the pain, like you mentioned, but there's not the light quality of also children being children. Uh, I love the Ada character. She's so spirited and curious and feisty. This the little sister. And there's just, there's times where, you know, they're running away from their slave master, but in their dialogue and in their scenes, they're bickering with each other. And I'm, I'm laughing out loud, you know, and that just doesn't happen in other books where I read that are, you know, about touch upon these topics. And I think I was very fortunate in this, in this regard, in that because I was able to sort of place a lot of the book in the, in free water, in this maroon community, you get this sense of safety. You get this sense where you are able to really commune with people who have been enslaved, in re- but in real time. So they're not necessarily in the North thinking back about it, or they're not necessarily have, having been born free in the North and thinking. Instead, you are in an actual environment that where slavery is completely surrounding you, but within this small community where you're able to really hear the kids, you're able to enjoy them, you're able to watch them make mistakes, you're able to watch them be kids. And that, to me, is the gift of Maroons. It allows for that space and allows for the readers to then also feel that safety, not just the characters, but the reader. The safety and the empowerment, the empowerment really comes through. And I just, it's such Mm a, it's so refreshing and so needed. I also just wanted to Note how much I love the cover. The cover is gorgeous. It's a painting of some sort of close-up face of the main character, 12-year-old boy named Homer, and he's immersed. At first, you know, I didn't I didn't know until I got into the story where he was particular, but he's Im- immersed in the swamp water, but so peaceful looking, 
surrounded yeah. by all these beautiful green plants. We were so lucky um, with, with this cover. This this cover was done by an artist by the name of Cosby Cabrera, and she's based in Brooklyn, and she is extraordinary. She's done also other extraordinary sort of children's book work, but also she's an artist in her own right in that she has dolls. She has just a deep tradition of, of, of African-American art. And so she painted this for us. And I feel as though, you know, when you first see a character that you've lived with for, I don't know, 10, 15 years wow. of life, I can't explain to you that feeling. It is, um, it just, it's so impactful because you get to see, especially his eyes and the way, and it, I, I feel just so very, very blessed. And now she has actually informed my own imagination of who he is and what he looks like and what my protagonist looks like. And so I love that. I feel like she's given me a gift as well. Um, so so she, she drew that cover for this book? Specifically for this work and read the book and was able to really sort of see what was needed. Because I wasn't sure. I didn't have any vision of what the jacket cover would look like. Mm-hmm. None. I just couldn't. Um, but she did. So I, mean, I mentioned in passing, right, that you had, uh, we talked about, you know, about you know, Stacey Abrams being in political space and then going to write these, not just novels, but number one best-selling fiction book that she, she had done. And then, you know, one of your first things that was published on the national stage was in the Washington Post in 2007, I think it was, and you wrote about Obama's tightrope being as a black man in America, trying to be both black, but also, you know, uh, not too black that you can't get elected president, <laughs> right? So going, so that I understand. I've done op-eds my whole life, you know, and, and I'm still in that whole nonfiction space. Books I've written have been nonfiction. So I'm curious both about how you decided to make this a work of fiction, and then I'm very curious as a writer about how one does fiction. Like, how do you know how to do fiction and dialogue right. and character and all that? Uh, right. Absolutely. It's interesting um, that you mentioned the op-eds. I really am thankful that I went through that period. I feel as though that period was the uh, where I wrote op-eds. That period bridged my work with you and others and the nonprofit world and advocacy and, and all in racial justice it bridged it with writing and for me and expressing sort of myself. And so if, if not for that period where, where I wrote those op-eds, I don't know that I would have gotten to free water. So I very much appreciate that. I too asked myself that exact question. How do you write fiction? Right. <laughs> or what? <laughs> or, yes, well, I've never answered it and you've written the New York Times bestseller. So please illuminate. <laughs> well, it, for me, I it really came from a place of wanting to be able to, uh, again, express myself and knowing that for me, what was the best way that I felt I could reach children? What, what, how could I best reach my audience? And I automatically knew it was fiction. I never considered nonfiction, even though lately I have been asked that, like, why not nonfiction? This is great, a great tidbit of history. Why not use that as a tool? And I know automatically why not. I know because when I was a child, I knew that I very much related to what fiction does for you. Fiction takes away sort of, it, it takes you from the knowing of information to the actual feeling of that information and the feeling of the moment. And that is what I really wanted for my son. I want it for all children. I wanted them to be able to have a, a heartfelt connection with enslaved people, 
beyond what they quote unquote would know about them because that heartfelt connection is what stays with you for a lifetime. I can think of characters in my childhood fictional worlds that still excite me, that still conjure up feelings of importance, uh, everything from Anne of Green Gables, who had nothing to do with me as a child, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but still spoke to me in such a way. I lived in her world through that ser- the Anne of Green Gables series, and to the point where even today, if someone talks about Anne of Green Gables, I just light up. I'm like, oh, really? What about her? Really? <laughs> what, mm-hmm. about, what about Avonlea? <laughs> and so... I wanted that similar kind of connection for a topic where we generally tend to have have avoidance, where we generally tend to have feelings of fear and guilt or shame, all these things that kind of just have been built all around <laughs> enslaved people. I wanted to be able to shed that or just or or at least break through it and allow for any reader to feel connection. So I knew it was going to be fiction. And so once you know it's going to be something and it has to be that, then you <laughs> learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And you learn how to, I had to learn how to do it. And I'd say through version after version, revision after revision, and honing and honing and honing, I I can't tell you how many times I've read this. I, I'm so glad Susan was able to read the work that she did because mm-hmm. along the way, I needed people like her to say, hey, this is good. This mm-hmm. is That's what she said. She said, you know, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Now, I might have written another 15 <laughs> more revisions after that, but I know that I needed at that moment to hear her voice tell mm-hmm. me that you're on the road. So all along the road, those people are the ones that helped me. I just have one more question on that because it's 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 a different skill set though, right? Yes. Fiction is, and so you were a public policy major at Berkeley when we met you, right? So how did you learn the craft of okay, this character? We need a dialogue and conversation between these characters here. Well, I did along the way take a few classes in creative writing here mm. and there, like sort of evening adult classes. Mm. Um, but I have to say, it, most of my learning was through trial and error. So, for example, you said dialogue. I, too, said to myself, what do I know about dialogue? So mm-hmm. perhaps in my first version of this, I actually shrunk, I shrunk down the number of characters there would be. Mm-hmm. Um, because and I originally, when I originally thought of this book, I knew it would be a brother and a sister, Homer and Ada, who would go on this adventure together. But because of my fear of dialogue, I thought, well, let's just go with one character. How about that? (laughs) So I wrote the whole story with just Homer. And And it was, um, you know, kind of boring. And so I had to go back. And I said, as soon as I finished, writing it literally i got to the end of the story i went right back to this to the start and i and i wrote in ada and and tried it all over again and then as soon as i got to the end i said wow i could certainly use more characters in free water and then i went back and i wrote in sanzi and and billy and and so it it really was trial and error it's fascinating the ensemble cast of voices works so well uh one of the things i definitely wanted to bring up is that as as magical as your um, story is, I had to keep reminding myself, and I would remind my daughter that Free Water, the community, is inspired by a real true part of history in our country. It was inspired by the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia, 
you're from Virginia. How did you come to learn about the Great Dismal Swamp? Because I definitely, I did not learn about this in history. And I think, unfortunately, most of our children are still not learning about this in their history classes in school. And yet it is a fascinating part of our history. I, I'll admit, well, first, I'm not originally from Virginia. I was born in New York and raised in California. So, uh, and then my husband and I came to Virginia some, I don't know, it, it might be 20 some odd years ago. Um, uh, not 20 years ago, but like 18 years ago. Sorry. Um, a long time ago. And but didn't your family have this whole thing about all gathering in Virginia? They do. In fact, my family, we tend to move in packs. And so they moved from New York down to Virginia. And once they realized that one family, like my uncle, was doing well here, my grandmother came and moved here with my grandfather. And then my mom moved here. And then, and so it's grown. And my sister moved here. And so it's grown. And they bought a piece of land actually out in the rural parts of Virginia. Um, So they have over 150 acres of land out there. And they all have their homes out there. So yes, we have become quite attached to this to this land and to this place. And so I, I feel very fortunate about it. But before um, I, to be honest, when I first thought of the story about maroons, I wasn't sure that I would base it in the United States of America because my mm. first knowing of maroons came from a Latin American studies course where we talked about maroons uh, in other parts of the West, uh, be it in in Brazil, Jamaica, where they have stronger histories of it, where there's a longer sort of clear noted um, lineage of it. And so I did a lot of research on those communities. I learned a lot about um, uh, maroons in those countries. And, and yet for me, as soon as I got to the point where I knew my son, this was for my son, I knew that my question was always, can I find a way, knowing that his lineage is here in this country, can I find a way to get to to place it here? And so I started researching as well as I could Maroons in the United States of America, which is less known. And in that process, I came across a, a wonderful historian by the name of Sylvianne Diouf. Uh, she's at Brown University. And she has studied maroons in the United States of America. And she's written the a, a wonderful, almost a, not comprehensive, but one of the few book works of history that actually talks about maroons throughout the United States of America, throughout the southern part of the United States. And one of her examples, uh, the one of the largest examples, it happened to be the Great Dismal Swamp, right in the state that I lived in. And I'm like, wait a wow. second. <laughs> Said, oh, we have to go. We have the to go. ancestors are speaking. <laughs> part of it was like the bells went off. It was it, I was so excited, and and it also happened so that one of the foremost experts on the Great Dismal Swamp was at American University. He's an archaeologist that goes into the swamp with students from American University. His name is Dr. Daniel Sayers, and he would actually do archaeological digs on the elevated lands that they think African Americans likely lived on to survive in such an inhospitable place. That's how I ended up in the Great Dismal Swamp and learning about that history. Now, I'll tell you that history is it, it's fascinating, but it makes sense all at the same time. So the history is, is that it, the Great Dismal Swamp at its height was somewhere between 1,500 square miles or greater. And so wow. you can imagine 
that is an extraordinary amount of terribly inhospitable land. So um, imagine everything from mud to thicket to to snake and bear. It it there's a reason why they call it this. <laughs> there's a reason, and it was sort of and 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 cloaked around it were 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 ideas of like just scary things, you know, people of it being haunted. And and so people generally didn't think it was a good place to reside. Now, later over time, people did see that it had wood and certain all sorts of resources that might have made it profitable. And so you started to find Mm -hmm. people trying to do business there, like our former president, George Washington. He went into the Great Dismal Swamp looking to find ways to make money. Um, And others that did shingles uh, that they use the wood for shingles, um, uh, sales, uh, and all sorts of things. But so two things happened because of that. One, African-Americans that were in that area, because it was known to be so inhospitable, would find ways to go there. Uh, and so that makes sense to me. If you were a person who was enslaved on a, in nearby, wouldn't you want to find a way? Some were caught, but others were not. So from the 1700s, all the way until the Civil War, there are tales that you can find of African-Americans finding refuge in the Great Dismal Swamp. And so everything from people who have gone into the swamp, making record, getting deep in the swamp and finding an African-American woman with her six children around her at, at the water's edge, or at the time of the Civil War, a Union soldier at the, at the edge of the Great Dismal Swamp, watching as an African-American mother and father come from the swamp with their seven children children behind them, none of whom had ever even seen a white person. So when you see here and, and, and learn of that kind of history, my imagination just, it just exploded. I was so ready to know, one, that there were children in the swamp, which is wonderful. And two, that that there was longevity there of some sort. I just want to ask a little bit more about the research front of it, because you're just, you're talking about there's a lot of specificity in like cultural and archaeological specificity that you have in the book. And so can you talk about how you went about getting that information? What was even that process like in terms of acquiring it? Well, there are some things that we know and other things that we didn't. So there's always a mix here because of the clandestine nature of it. There's always a mix. So I was able to learn certain things through, let's say, Dr. Sayers and through the work of Professor Diouf. So things like what might they have eaten? And it's known that in the swamp, there were wild hogs. And so wild hogs plays quite an interesting role, actually, in this book. And you see that it's one of the things that's eaten there. Also, in the way of what kinds of plant life or things like that, what what did what might they have lived off us of in the way of plants and food from the land? And there's been a history where and when I learned this, when I visited the Great Dismal Swamp, I went on a tour where they talked about sort of how we might live off of the land and anything from wax of so, from certain trees, certain types of certain types of sap that could be used to ignite a, a match um, uh, that could be used to keep fire to um, what kinds of herbs might be used to, I don't know, say, create. Uh, sleep solutions or create or be medicinal. So I learned about the foliage there and how it was useful. And and so 
I constantly tried to find ways. Now, I, what I also did, however, was that because I read about so many types of maroon communities, I borrowed from Jamaica, I borrowed from Brazil. And so in like, for example, we have the tree people in free water. I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet, Charlene. Yes, um, yes. But the tree people came absolutely from my research on maroons in Jamaica, where they found ways to survive and protect themselves, protect their communities by festooning them com- themselves completely in foliage mm. um, to help fight the maroon wars and to be to remain clandestine. And as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, that is that's like built for extraordinary fiction. Um, so it just took time. And it also, and I will tell you though, this is not a history book in that I too felt like it, I mixing imagination and what little facts we have of them was important. I think too often when we look at history, particularly African-American history, we tend to find ways to tie our own feet to the concrete ground with our storytelling times. Mm. And it, to the point where, to have someone say to me, oh, well, why not a nonfiction book? I'm like, whoa, what? are you kidding me? A nonfiction book? That would mean that a kid could just read it and just walk away and they might or might not remember what it is. And one of the things that you find in mainstream history that they're better able and more, not better able, but exercise all sorts of freedom in doing is finding ways to uplift and excite and pull in everything history and 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 so and and their and their ways of doing it are ways of doing it so that you can both remember and be impressed by the Horatio Alger stories all sorts of things to make you value history value a particular kind of history and that was always my goal my goal was to inspire my goal and and of course then you can take what you learn from this book and and find out more information that it, that is crucial to to our own understanding but we have to first want to be there we have to want to be in this space and that's what free water is about it's about wanting kids to want to be in the space I mean, you definitely have done that. So speaking of kids, like I told you, my daughter, who's 11, she's going to be 12 this summer. She's uh, just finished sixth grade. I told her I thought it would be really cool if she would be willing to share with you and our listeners a little bit about her thoughts on the book so far that she's um, she's been reading it. She's probably almost halfway through. So I have a clip here to share of my daughter giving a bit of her thoughts on your book, Free Water. It's really nice. I like all the details and the plot. I like nature and I have like a lot of nature incorporated into the book. I like how the author explains the setting. It's interesting because they have to go into hiding in order to survive, but it's like in the middle of nowhere. I found it like really interesting because we didn't learn about these stuff in school and it's really interesting. I just think the writing style is really nice and it's like it's easy to understand and I just like it. That is fantastic. Thank you. That is yeah. so cool. Oh, thank you. And then my next question to you, Amina, is I am curious, what was your son's reaction to the book? So crazy because I wrote it with him in mind. Absolutely. But the book took a little longer um, than I had anticipated. <laughs> and so I yeah, Stephen, I know what that's like. I missed that. <laughs> 
you know, I always had in my mind that I would just, I would be sitting there with him, reading it to him. <laughs> and unfortunately, I missed that time. So he, of course, did it on his own. And he he, he likes it. He, he's proud of me. And it's funny because he's prouder of me with his friends or with people, you know, when I'm not there, I think. So he'll like mention it. Yeah. Like, then then, then like, admitting <laughs> to me. My mama's that, a Newberry winner. Hmm. Back. <laughs> or something. So I think he might toss it in the conversation elsewhere more so, but he appreciates and enjoys it. Um, uh, I I just think for him, he's 14, so he's kind of like, oh, you Typical know, for school. nice job. You know, I never got my time to sort of commune with him at bedtime with it. Well, don't, don't take it personally. So when Obama was touring the uh, Lincoln Memorial before being sworn in, right? Like the days leading up to the inauguration. He said with his kids, and one of the daughters says, first black president, huh? Better not mess this up, right? So <laughs> kids, right? Tough, tough audience. That's story right yeah. there. I get it. Yes, I yeah. So we're getting, we could go on forever. It's such a great conversation. I mean, I really appreciate it. And so we're getting towards the end, but I do want to talk about uh, kind of close with your journey um, in terms of, I think that'll be <clears throat> it's one thing that's, you know, kind of most exciting, you know, and, and, and moving to me, frankly, is kind of seeing your kind of growth and development and, and, and moving in this regard. And I think that'll be uh, instructive and inspiring for other people as well. And it's a difficult thing in terms of trying to get to a place of confidence that you can do this type of a thing. Right? I mean, I remember actually it was Amy Allison, who was one of the first people who said, I should write a book. And you know, I thought oh, whatever, but and it's only after I gave a speech at the Cleveland City Club, and then they put that speech on C-SPAN as the Martin Luther King program. And the title of that speech, 2014, was "The Phillips on Race and Politics." I guess I was seeing myself on TV, and I was all like, "Well, maybe I could write a book, right?" In terms of having that level of confidence. And I don't know if you remember, this must have been 15, 20 years ago. We were at dinner here in San Francisco. And I remember and I was sitting next to you and I was like, I don't recall exactly what I said, but I was like, you are a really talented writer, Amina, and that you should really think about getting your voice out into the world. And I think that conversation was painful for you, as I recollect it. But going from there to writing this book, having all the success. So can you talk about what the journey was like to be able to find your confidence and find your voice and put it out into the world? I'm so glad you asked that question because I don't, I never think of it in those terms, but it's, it's absolutely correct. This idea of a confidence journey, this idea of finding myself and finding my voice. Ian, you were definitely there. And I appreciate you and, and Susan, because I remember for me, putting my voice into the world, putting myself out there always felt as though it wasn't me who's supposed to say certain things. Someone else, some some more <laughs> wiser, more more talented, more person was supposed to do that work. And if there's anything that I learned through working with you at Justice Matters and working with Susan is that, yes, it's supposed to be you. Stop looking for someone else. <laughs> and so I appreciate that in ways that you will never know and truly understand, I think, because... Each time you all gave us gave me work, because I remember I was in graduate school the first mm -hmm. time 
assignment for you all. And the first time we had a project and it was, and you asked me, you said, Hey, you know, that you, you post questions. And this one thing, I'm, I'm not surprised you do podcasts today because one thing I always relate to you is that you always post big questions mm-hmm. and you pose them in such a way that to me you said, okay, well, here, answer this big question. And I remember feeling like me want me to answer. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's about movement building and how movements are created and how we keep them going. And, and I looked at Ralph Nader. Um, he was a presidential candidate at the time who had been, who was considered kind of a spoiler of the Gore race. And I felt that confidence just mm-hmm. for a moment. I'm like, I'm going to be speaking on big things. I'm going to be making big things with my voice. And so I appreciated that. And over time, I remember Susan asking me one day, she's like, really, this is this might have been one of the last times I saw her, actually. She says, Mina, and I was at a point where I, I was, it wasn't clear what I was doing. I had just, I stopped working at Justice Matters, but I was still, um, I was just kind of out there. I think I was substitute teaching at the time. And I was doing that because I was working on free water. And she asked me, she said, so what do you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And it's one of those times where she made me kind of declare it. I was like, you know, I want to write children's books. I want to write. And I was like, and, and, and once again, she kind of made me, you all have always been that, that force from like making me sort of like, okay, declare who I, who I am and what I want in this world. And, and she said, okay. (laughs) And that reaction, those responses that you've always had has made it. So it's helped me to feel like, yeah, absolutely declare it. This is fine. And, and that confidence building is important. So I thank you all more than that, more than you can know that you include me in this sort of this list or this world of people that you say it's the individuals that create the change. And yeah, I look at you all and I always feel that about you. And I always feel when I'm around you, I always feel as though I want you to know that I, you know, I, I, I've done good. I've done well. <laughs> I've made it. And, and I, of course, now I know there's no one making it, but um, I always want you to be, be proud of, of what I've done. So I appreciate this very much. Couldn't be more proud of me now. And so before we have to go, I have to ask, speaking of, you know, you've done well, and then therefore, you know, what that means is people, sometimes they want more. So fans like me, and I'm sure my daughter would love to know what's next for you, anything, you know, that you want to share with us in terms of other projects, or I'm I'm curious, I want to see Free Water be a movie. <laughs> I'm going to put that out in the world, but I'm just curious if there's anything you want to share with us about what's next. Darlene, thank you so much for putting that out in the world. I will mm-hmm. take it. I love that. And uh, But for me, artistically, I am working on my next book. Uh, it's a baby of a book, so I, I haven't shared too much. But I can say that I am taking a character, Anna, from this, from Freewater, and I'm following her on her mm-hmm. own adventure to see and hopefully share another really cool bit of history through her. Oh, can't wait. That's awesome. All right. Well... This is truly one of the times I most said that we have to end the podcast, but um, I just really want to thank you so much, you know, Mina, for making time and just, you know, I don't really have the words in terms of how meaningful all of this is. And so I'm just really glad you could be with us. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun. I hope it goes well. All right. I think that's the most I've cried in a podcast. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Amina on Twitter at 
at Amina Lukman, L-U-Q-M-A-N. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy and Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. Democracy and Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and Fola Onifade, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Cannot imagine us having done a better Juneteenth episode. Until next time, keep the faith.